Nine years into the Trojan War, a plague is tearing through the camp of the invading Greeks, and the warrior Achilles and his commander Agamemnon are at each other's throats. Agamemnon has taken the daughter of a priest of Apollo as a war prize, refusing to return her, insisting on his right as a conqueror. And in return, Apollo, god of order, light, and healing, has abandoned the Greeks. Now Achilles confronts the warlord Agamemnon, saying that his pride will be all of their doom. And Agamemnon barks back, punishing Achilles for challenging him. And the warrior draws his sword on his commander. It is only when the wise goddess Athena holds back his hand that Achilles pauses, her gray eyes piercing through the haze of his anger. This is all within the first book of Homer's Iliad, the oldest work of European literature. The telling of the Trojan War features gods and heroes, fierce battles, and quiet moments of love. Yet the core of the epic is not the fighting on the plains of Troy, but the conflict within the hero Achilles. In the words of the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, A man likes to believe that he is the master of his soul. But as long as he is unable to control his moods and emotions, or to be conscious of the myriad unconscious factors in his arrangements and decisions, he is certainly not his own master. As Jung refers to unconscious factors controlling the soul, the Iliad tells of the gods in control of its heroes' lives. And just as we must be conscious of these factors to control our emotions, so the ancient heroes must be conscious of the gods to control themselves. Approaching the Iliad with this mindset shows that it is not just the epic's historical significance, but its psychological depth that makes it just as relevant to us today as it was thousands of years in the past. My name is Sean. Welcome to Mythos and Logos. While at Athena's behest, Achilles stays his hand this time, his rage is far from over, and the gods are not finished with him yet. And while Agamemnon does return the priest's daughter for ransom, he takes Achilles' own war prize as a lesson to any who would challenge him as an equal. Achilles refuses to fight for such a man and retreats to his tent where he can watch the carnage outside while his rage festers. The war does not pause for Achilles. He can see the lines moving from Troy's walls closer to the Greek camps on the shore as years of progress are undone in his absence. And Agamemnon in time recognizes his mistake strategically at least, and sends three great men to bring Achilles back into the fight. The strategist Odysseus, the wise veteran Phoenix, and the brave Ajax each represent one of the most valued traits in a warrior. 
Achilles' companion Patroclus welcomes them, offering a sacrifice to the gods, and the men set forth to end Achilles' rage. Clever Odysseus is the first to speak, recognizing Achilles' favor with the gods. Clearly, he has been blessed with strength, but it is up to him to control his proud spirit. Odysseus pushes Achilles to let go of his anger, if not for the sake of riches for the lives of his comrades in battle. But Achilles says that fate comes for hero and coward alike, and he will not fight for Agamemnon in a pointless war. The veteran Phoenix speaks next of his youth, when in anger he nearly drew his sword on his own father. But remembering his honor, he allowed a god to calm him, and he left his father's house rather than become a murderer. This brought him to the court of King Peleus, Achilles' father, where he would raise the young warrior. And with the wisdom of age, Phoenix is certain that Achilles will eventually have no choice but to fight. He calls him to be like the gods and set aside his anger before it is too late. You have to master your proud spirit. It's not right for you to have a pitiless heart. Even the gods can bend, superior as they are in honor, power, and every excellence. They can be turned aside from wrath when humans supplicate them with incense and prayers, with libations and savor of sacrifice. But Achilles says that his honor is to himself, and that giving in to Agamemnon would only dishonor him. Courageous Ajax is the last to speak, shaming cruel, heartless Achilles for abandoning his friends. But Achilles' love for his friends cannot overcome his hatred for Agamemnon, and he refuses to lift a finger until the great Trojan warrior Prince Hector is at the very door of his own hut. Ajax and Odysseus return to Agamemnon with news that Achilles' wrath has only grown, and the war outside continues. As the godlike warrior nurses his rage in his tent, the Trojan prince Hector leads an assault that drives the Greeks back to their ships. Achilles' beloved companion Patroclus sees the carnage on the battlefield, and he weeps. Achilles, great as you are, don't be vengeful. They're dying out there. They've all been hit and are lying wounded in camp. The medics are working on them right now, stitching up their wounds, but you are incurable, Achilles. God forbid I ever feel the spite you nurse in your heart. You and your damned honor, what good will it do future generations if you let us go down to this defeat in cold blood? Peleus was never your father. No, the gray sea spat you out into crags in the surf with an icy scab for a soul. At least 
send me out. Let me lead a troop. Let me wear your armor. If the Trojans think I am you, they'll back off and give the Greeks some breathing space. What little there is in war. Our rested men will turn them with a shout and push them back from our ships to Troy. That was how Patroclus, like a child begging for a toy, begged for death. Armor in the Bronze Age was both practical, able to save the wearer from the strike of a spear, and a status symbol. Only aristocracy could afford the craftsmanship. Today, we can imagine our odds in a fight against Batman with his training and resources, or a Spartan super soldier from Halo or the Terminator, to an average Bronze Age conscript, the sight of Achilles would be just as intimidating. So Achilles sees the logic of his companion's plan and agrees to lend Patroclus his men and armor. Fearing for his beloved, Achilles directs Patroclus to fight defensively, so the sight of him may make the Trojans retreat, and pleads with him not to challenge Prince Hector directly. The Iliad describes Patroclus and Hector on the battlefield like lions, tearing through the Trojan and Greek lines respectively, And like that ferocious beast, Patroclus is carried away by the thrill of battle. He does not fall back on the defensive, but attacks the Trojans head-on, like one possessed by the war god Ares. This predictably leads him to Hector, and the two warriors meet face to face, in a clash that culminates in Patroclus' death at Hector's hand. Patroclus' death sets Achilles' once quiet rage aflame. He weeps over Patroclus' body for days and is determined not to rest until Troy is equally lifeless. The gods forge Achilles' new armor, and he joins the fight, slaying countless Trojan sons. And while even the great prince Hector is among those that he slays, Achilles cannot undo the past. He lays Hector's body at Patroclus' feet. It does not bring his companion back. At Patroclus' funeral, Achilles throws twelve Trojan soldiers into the pyre as sacrifice. Their blood does not douse the fire of his rage. Achilles ties Hector's body to his chariot, parading the slain prince around Troy's walls for days. But all of the Trojans' pain does not ease his own. The god Apollo protects the good prince's body from Achilles' desecration, but day after day Achilles rages on, until one night when a visitor arrives in his tent. An old man enters, unnoticed and alone, and kneels at Achilles' feet. It is Priam, the Trojan king and Hector's father, 
but Achilles thinks that it must be some god. Kissing Achilles' hands, King Priam speaks. Remember your father, godlike Achilles. He hears that you are still alive and his heart rejoices. But what is left for me? I had the finest sons in all wide Troy, and not one of them is left. The only one who could save the city you've just now killed as he fought for his country, my Hector. It is for him that I've come to the Greek ships, to get him back from you. Respect the gods, Achilles. Think of your own father and pity me. I have borne what no man who has walked this earth has ever yet borne. I have kissed the hand of the man who killed my son. Hearing these words, Achilles gently lifts Priam, and the two men weep together. Priam for his lost sons and lost city, and Achilles for his father and his lost beloved friend. The others fall silent as the sound of their tears fills the room. In time, the aching sorrow leaves Achilles' heart, and he speaks. And though Achilles' words are directed to Priam, they are also for himself. Let our pain lie at rest a while, no matter how much we hurt. There's nothing to be gained from cold grief. You must endure this grief and not constantly grieve. You will not gain anything by torturing yourself over the good son you lost, not bring him back. Sooner you will suffer some other sorrow. Achilles' servants wash Hector's body anointing it with oil and dressing it in beautiful robes. And Achilles himself lifts his former enemy Hector up, placing him on a cart for the journey home. The men agree to call an armistice, and in the coming days, the Greeks and Trojans each bury their dead. Those Trojans who are still alive in the city pour out wine on the funeral pyre, and wrap Hector's bones in royal purple robes, burying him in a golden casket. Just as the Iliad does not begin at the start of the Trojan War, it does not end with the war's conclusion. Yet the ingredients of its opening and closing are the same. A ransom of someone sacred to Apollo, a plea for compassion, and a man with a choice. Just as Agamemnon's arrogance led countless to their deaths, Achilles' moment of emotional vulnerability brings about a brief moment of peace. And though the Trojan War in time resumes, Achilles stays at peace within himself. Just as he recognized the goddess Athena holding him back, and as he ignored the gods in his rage, 
Achilles now recognizes the godliness within Priam, and that allows the men to share a moment of humanity. While possessed by rage, Achilles thought that he was honoring himself, but he was clearly not the master of his own soul. But as he comes to recognize the blessings and the curses that the gods give, and sharing his grief with another, his rage finally clears. Seeing the same gods at play in others' lives and the same emotions flowing through them, Achilles is able to comprehend his own grief, and recognizing the same forces acting upon him, Achilles becomes a master of himself. And so if we, in the words of Jung, wish to believe that we are the masters of our own soul, and if we wish for that to be true, we must also recognize the forces within us, within ourselves, and recognize them in others. Then, as Achilles ended the war within himself, so we can be at peace. If you're still here, I am so thankful for you making it to the end of this video, and I am especially thankful to our Patreon supporters who make this possible, and everyone who leaves a like, comment, subscribe, engaging and sharing these stories and their deep meanings. This is the first in a three-part series. Next, we are continuing through Homer, going on to the Odyssey. Then, we will finish with Virgil's Aeneid, the Roman sequel that actually focuses on one of the Trojans. I hope to see you there, and I thank you again.